This is 720 WGN, and you're listening to a special Saturday night special in which we are collaborating tonight with the hosts of No Coast, which you can listen to on WGN Plus. That is esteemed producer Tom Hush and Connor Cornelius. So we're all here, and it's almost Halloween, and so how could we possibly not talk about horror films, something all three of us enjoy very, very much, and who better to get to join that conversation than Josh Goldblum, who is behind Cinepocalypse, which is happening right around the corner uh, right here in Chicago. Welcome to the program, Josh. Hi, Amy. Hey, Connor. Thanks so much for having me. So talk to us about Cinepocalypse for those who may not be familiar with the event. Uh, so Cinepocalypse actually came out of uh, three years of the Bruce Campbell Horror Film Festival, uh, which we presented in uh, Rosemont, Illinois. And uh, the concept here was just to move forward into uh, exploring the full genre landscape as opposed to just horror movies. So, you know, sci-fi, action films, um, comedies, uh, anything concerningly odd. And uh, we partnered here with the Music Box Theater, which is, you know, one of my favorite theaters in the United States. And we kick off next Thursday. And and rightly so to have that designation. It is one of my favorites, too. It's such a beautiful space. And they're so very supportive of the local and regional film community, for sure. Yeah, they've been absolutely fantastic to work with. It's something that, uh, you know, Bruce and I actually had our eye on uh, since the very beginning of the development of the festival. And so, you know, it, when it came together, it was just a no-brainer for us to partner with the Music Box. And, you know, one thing that really strikes me about this event is, is your attention to uh, how many forms this can take. Because for, for so many film festivals, it is feature-length only, uh, has to be, you know, fits very, very specific criteria. But I really applaud how, how open you seem to both new feature, shorts, premiere, you know, all kind of different uh, ways to be involved in a festival. Yeah, you know, I'm a bit obsessive by nature. And so, you know, when I tend to, we, we work on this program, you know, anywhere from like six to eight months prior to announcing. Um, and so, you know, we spend time all across the world scouting these film festivals, you know, looking for something that we want to present to our audience. And so, you know, by design, when we put this program together, we want to be able to offer a little bit of everything. And so why is this genre particularly important to you? Uh, you know, I, I think just in regards to my sensibilities, I, I have a very independent nature to my personality. And so I get excited by things that kind of exist outside the regular boundaries. And so the way that I always look at genre film is almost like the game of football, right? Like the game of football is played via rules and regulations inside the boundaries. And what we do kind of exists outside of that. And so there really aren't rules and regulations, you know, the standard Hollywood material. Um, and I think, you know, creative artists by nature just kind of have an open landscape to just design whatever the heck they want to. And that's kind of what excites me about genre film. I like what you said earlier, concerningly odd. I think that's... Yeah. <laughs> that's a great way to put that. Um, and so what on this lineup, which is it's all happening pretty much... Uh, kicking off right around the corner here. Uh, of this lineup, what are you most looking forward to or, or seems to have, a, a you know, you're hearing a lot of buzz about? Uh, you know, everything, it's, it's, it's really tough to play favorites. I feel like I'm so close to just about every project within the festival. Um, you know, certainly opening night, Sweet Virginia, uh, with John Bernthal and Christopher Abbott is absolutely one of my favorite films of the year. And, you know, that's kind of what's exciting moving into this year into just kind of the full genre landscape 
I mean, here we have, you know, an independent, very tense uh, drama, part thriller, but certainly not a horror film. Um, it definitely has horrific aspects to it. Chris Abbott gives one of the performances of the year. It's just a complete sociopath, uh, a serial killer, hell-bent on just rage and, you know, just small-town America. Um, it's just such a wonderful film, but, you know, I don't know necessarily within the pre- previous three years it's something we could present at the horror festival. But uh, certainly excited about opening night. Um, you know, we have Eric Roberts coming into town. Uh, for a podcast, which I'm not sure I could really say on air, uh, but it's a uh, it's a podcast uh, called Eric Roberts is the Expletive Man. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you for that. For the, first, <laughs> for the first time ever, he's meeting with the podcast host. These guys get together weekly, and they explore just about every single one of Eric Roberts' movies, which he does like 50 or 60 per year. Right. And they just they you know they decide whether or not he is the man. So for the for in that particular movie, uh, for the first time ever, he's going to join them live uh, for that experience, which I'm kind of really excited about. Um, you know, we we have a, a group of producers um, from Boulder Boulder Light Pictures that are making us a movie from scratch just for the festival. Uh, these are the producers that were behind the contracted series uh, with IFC. Uh, so I'm pretty excited. I know nothing about the film. It's going to be a surprise for everybody what they deliver. But it's uh, it's going to be a feature film, and it's going to be a midnight movie. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, we have Joe Carnahan coming in, one of my favorite directors. Uh, he's curating, um, you know, just kind of a little bit of the action program for us. So I'm excited about that. I tend to think it's it's a pretty jam packed program from top to bottom. I mean, it really sounds like it for sure. And and I think it's so great. You you've noted on the on the website. There's it really points out to, you know, this is the Midwest premiere, this is the North American premiere. You have a lot of premieres at this one. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that it's another thing that's exciting to me, and I hope it's exciting for the audience. You know, a lot of these films are going to be seen for the very first time in North America. And, you know, I take it kind of personally, and I know the amount of work that these filmmakers pour into each and every film. So, I, you know, I think it's very important to us that we're able to give them the proper outlet to screen these movies. Um, but it, it's it's exciting to be able to say, hey, you guys have worked, some of these films, you know, the filmmakers have worked four or five years on, and this is the very first time that they're going to be screening it to a public audience. So with, uh, with this sort of genre film festival, there's people out there that, who know and love these movies. I know especially I'm excited about that uh, 35 millimeter Suspiria screening with mm-hmm. Jessica Harper. That's going to be absolutely incredible. Be cool. But I wonder, do you think that this Cinepocalypse, are you trying to convert some people to this genre land of film? You know, we certainly always hope for that, right? It's, it's, it's a very inviting, you know, open-door festival. And, you know, I think anybody willing to take chances, just, you know, just kind of step outside the box from the norm, I think, you know, are, are going to be very fulfilled with this festival. You know, a, a lot of people, when they hear independent cinema, tend to think of, like, amateur filmmaking. And it's it's just not that, right? These are movies that just don't have the P&A, the marketing spend, that these big Hollywood movies have. And so, you know, people tend to just not hear about these films, but it doesn't mean that, that, that they're any worse uh, or any, like, lower of a level of product than what Hollywood puts out. It's just not a movie with a lot of marketing spend behind it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the hope is always that people, you know, just step a little bit outside the box, take some chances, uh, kind of what the filmmakers are doing, right? It's, 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 
you know, doing something a little bit different from the norm, taking chances and, uh, you know, hoping for success. I think that's what we're doing here, too. And I'm particularly excited that it's being held at the Music Box because I just think that I've always loved seeing horror films there. The molding on the walls is kind of satanic and just sort of like evil looking. So I'm really glad that I'm going to be able to get to, to see some, you know, horror and sci-fi and, and comedy there. I think that that'll really help the audience uh, if they aren't already converted. I think that that'll certainly be therapeutic to the conversion. Sure. You know, it, it, it's wonderful for us, for us to be able to take these movies that, you know, generally are seen on like smaller screens anywhere from like 80 to 150 seats and put them into just this gorgeous old 750-seat art house. Um, it's, uh, I, I think it's special for us, and I certainly hope it's special for the filmmakers, who, for the most part, will be in town for every single film. So yeah. you mentioned that this isn't your first time at the uh, at the rodeo when it comes to programming a film festival. You were involved with Awesome Fest and also, as you mentioned, uh, Bruce Campbell's Horror Film Festival. Is there anything in particular you're trying to do differently with this? Are you just saying we're going to take what we know and apply it to a little bit of uh, a broader, I don't know, genre sure. landscape? I think everything's building blocks for me, right? Like, Every year, we just kind of want to take a step forward and just kind of expand our, our, our direction a bit. Um, this year was about a new venue uh, opening up, you know, to, to, to genre films outside of just horror and uh, also taking the festival from three days to an entire week. So whereas, you know, in previous years, I think we had anywhere from 15 to 18 features. We're well over 40 features this year. Um, and, you know, well over 60, 70 films in total, including short films. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, a lot of it for me, like I get excited about repertory films too. I know, you know, with a lot of festivals around the globe, it's about, you know, newer titles uh, and premiere titles. And for me, it's kind of about exploring some of the nostalgia of why we got into this genre, why we love this genre so much. And that's why it's kind of fun to do these 35 millimeter screenings like Suspiria, like Near Dark, uh, like I'm going to get you stuck, uh, Foxy Brown. Um, you know, it's 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 fun for the audience, and they think I think it's 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 a good starting point too to just kind of see where genre filmmaking came from. Definitely, and that kind of leads into my next question for you: Is, is there's so much uh, kind of commentary around? what horror really represents. I think especially when we can we have the luxury of looking back at particular genres and, and connecting it to what was happening culturally or politically. You know, we had for a while, uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, this this literary genre where we were seeing kind of horror elements added into British literature, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, things like that. So, so in your mind, what does the sci-fi and horror genre represent culturally? Uh, you know, it's a heavy, loaded question. Um, yeah, I take it back to, you know, what George Romero was doing with Night of the Living Dead, right? A lot of people take a look at, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and they just look at it as like a zombie film. But it was also, you know, it was also, more importantly, it was a commentary on, on the political climate at the time. And I think we're seeing that right now, too. Uh, you take a look at movies like Attack of the Adult Babies, and it sounds absolutely ridiculous, and it certainly is. But it's also, you know, horror filmmakers are, are, are very intellectual with with their fingers to the pulse of, you know, just the particular climate that they live in. And I think there's a little bit of punk rock to being a genre filmmaker, right? Because, again, you're existing outside of the norm. 
You're not you're not working with the big bosses, you know, in, in the Hollywood studios. You're just kind of doing your own thing, and you're doing your own thing because you don't want to take orders from other people. And so, you know, punk rock was always built, you know, out of you know political climates and rebellion and anarchy. And I think a lot of that is in genre cinema too. And so I think you know, filmmakers are just very reactionary to the times that they live in. And I think you see a lot of that in the films that they make. And you'll certainly see a lot of that in, in, in some of the films in the festival this year. I want to ask about your own personal experience with genre film. Uh, when would you say that you started into this world of, uh, of kind of sci-fi horror things that aren't exactly mainstream and what kept you there? So my dad was involved with a local video store where I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, I just became with, obsessed with the horror fiction uh, in the video store early on. And I think a lot of it had to do with just kind of the old poster art, um, which is kind of like it's kind of like a lost art form. Um, but it, I think a lot of it was just being obsessed with these covers of these movies that were just so absolutely extreme and just indulging on it every single night. Um, but it, it's fantasy, right? Horror doesn't need to scare you. Uh, it doesn't need to give you nightmares. It just has to be something. You know, for me as a kid, it was just something that existed outside of my reality. And so I think a lot of it was just taking myself away from, you know, the norm, the things that they dealt with every day, you know, going to school, doing homework. It was just this alternate reality that I could live in for a couple hours each night. And so I think that's kind of what turned me on you know, it's horror and genre filmmaking in general. But uh, most importantly, I, I really do. I love the people involved. I love the fan base. It's, it's so absolutely organic and, and so respectful. It's, you know, the there's no communities built around, you know, romance movies or genres or thrillers. But, you know, when you take a look at horror movies, right, you have these festivals and these conventions all across the world. It just kind of people come together and they network, they create. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing to watch it happen. And I think that's what genre cinema is, right? It's like-minded individuals coming together to just kind of create the things that they want to see. And it is kind of fascinating to think about horror, the horror genre as a community and as sort of like a punk rock community at that. Because when you have something like that, you mentioned that like action films don't really have a community base around it like that. But when you have something like that, there are different iterations of that community as, you know, like as political landscapes change and as time goes on. So I was uh, I, I was curious, how do you feel about the sort of the renaissance of horror? Because there have definitely been obviously a lot of different movements within the horror genre. And I feel like particularly in the last five or seven years, there has really been a resurgence of not like pulpy horror films. They're just a little bit more auteur and they're a little bit more like art housey, like with the films that a 24 has been producing specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, I was curious to get some of your thoughts on that and sort of the implications of that uh, for horror as an art form. I think, I think a lot of it is the crossover effect, right? I think a lot of, especially studios and filmmakers, are looking for a way to take, you know, horror, which some people might be scared away from, and cross it over into another genre. So that's where you, you have terms like elevated genre cinema, which might be more towards, you know, gear-based or, or, or promoted more towards an auteur-type audience, if you will. You know, people that are into art house filmmakers. But for me, it's, Horror is horror. It's always been that way. 
It's just a matter of where the crossover effect kind of comes into play. I think everybody's just trying to cross-label stuff. It's kind of those studio sensibilities where it's like, okay, who do we sell these movies to? Um, but I just look at horror as horror. I mean, you know, for years, for the past like decade, horror films primarily weren't being distributed you know, in, to the mass audiences, right? They, these weren't films that were playing in like 3,000 theaters across the country. Right. And, and I think that's where this genre independent movement came from. And so whereas you used to have horror movies that were shot for like 10, 15, 20 million dollars being pushed out to all these theaters, all of a sudden here's an ebb and a flow to the marketplace and horror films just weren't making money. And now you have people like Blumhouse that are coming in and they're saying, hey, we can make these movies uh, at around $5 million, and we can distribute them to 3,000 theaters, and people want to see them. And that's, you know, you have these movies, you know, all of a sudden you have The Conjuring, you have uh, Paranormal Activity, you know, the resurgence of the Blair Witch Project. And all of this stuff just kind of helps the movement and shows the studios, hey, people kind of want to see these movies. Indeed. Well, Josh Goldblum, thank you so much for being with us. Cinepocalypse, I'm super excited. We will see you there. It is November 2nd through 9th at the Music Box Theater. You can find out more about it and find tickets and all that good stuff at musicboxtheater.com. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I was in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from a slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster mash. The Amy Guth here. Thanks for listening to the Saturday Night Special tonight. Before, during, and after shows, I often tweet out links to many of the stories and topics and guests that I mention on the air or talk with on the air. So feel free to connect with me on social media. Username Amy Guth, G-U-T-H, on all platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and possibly my favorite, Instagram. Though mostly I just post pictures of flowers there and soup. And sometimes selfies. Don't judge. Anyway, thanks for listening. WGN, this is a very special Saturday night special in which um, there's a big collaboration happening with a gentleman from No Coast. You know esteemed producer Tom Hush, but did you know that he's also one half of the No Coast podcast? Indeed he is. He is here and his co-host Connor Cornelius is also here and we're talking all about horror movies. What else are we talking about? Because Halloween is almost upon us and so of course we're talking about all that stuff and since they talk about films I just thought it is a perfect time to join forces and all sit in the same room and talk it over. Okay, so we just talked to Josh Goldblum from uh, Cinepocalypse, all about that upcoming event. And, you know, I was I asked him about kind of that cultural representation question, because I think that's always a really interesting one. And as he was talking about the the specific community around horror, I thought uh, my mind was kind of starting to go this direction of, you know, well, why is it only around horror? Yeah, I mean, it it's... Why, why do we not see a community around other genres like that? We have, I mean, we've talked to a lot of people in horror because with, with our focus on independent filmmakers, horror is such an easy place to get into, even for like um, bigger companies. Like he mentioned Blumhouse Productions, which yeah. has been on an absolute 
tear at the box office, making you know roughly five to six million dollar films and seeing ridiculous returns on that. So uh, a lot of filmmakers really get their start in horror and doing genre film. So maybe it's because of that just dedication to the pure craft of it like uh james cameron started his career with roger corman making mm-hmm. like piranha 2 a lot of and, people did yeah I mean, we t- we've talked before about galen hurd who started with yeah. roger corman too or peter jackson not with uh roger not corman. with them but <laughs> right. not with roger corman right. but peter jackson was known as like the madman from new zealand just making horribly gory films yeah dead alive is absolutely insane i think it's dead alive the one with the lawnmower scene where yeah. he just takes to people with a lawnmower yeah but even then why do we i mean why why is it more accessible to aspiring filmmakers than than other films that's a good question i think I, it's that kind of grand guggenhall sort of you know, free reign artistry that an artist, like a director could go into a horror film and kind of make virtually whatever they want. And it could be well-received and well-liked. I think people like going into those movies and seeing those types of movies. Maybe it just touches that place that we don't really always acknowledge that kind of uh, obsession with the macabre that we all have somewhere deep down. Even people that profess, you know, they say, Oh, I hate horror movies, all that kind of stuff. They could walk into something like, I don't know, Evil Dead 2 and get a total kick out of it. And um, it just inspires that kind of fandom. And it's just a maybe it's just the close knit nature of people coming together to watch horror films at midnight in their favorite old theater. I do also think that there's something I can only think about it from the perspective of an audience member. But I think that horror movies are a pol- it's like one of the most polarizing, if not the most polarizing genre of cinema. Because and whenever you have something on a poll, you're going to have, like you said, Tom, people who just don't like horror movies. But I think that the reason that there's a community around it is because there is going to be a sort of niche audience that absolutely loves it. And I feel like the passion for that can also be helped along by the fact that other people just don't really like it. You know, Mm -hmm. you can make a more personal connection to it through the lens of knowing that other people don't really like it. You know, you can feel feel a little bit more personal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's something even deeper beyond that. I think you're, I totally agree with you, but I think there's even more to it. It seems like that, you know, a lot of times when people push back against horror, it's like, it's negative, it's dark, it's scary. It's things that we're, we're socialized to believe we should avoid feeling or, or embracing or being around. So I think there's something almost forbidden, like the same reason people would like seriously watch porn, right? Yeah. It's like there's something forbidden <laughs> <What>? about. <laughs> right? Who what are you that? talking about? What kind of unwholesome person would do such a thing? <laughs> but it's like it's like what what is supposed to be taboo is almost irresistible in that way, yeah. right? So I think that's perhaps why the community is such a close knit one and such a such a uh, specific fandom to yeah. be around horror because there is something a little forbidden and taboo. Yeah. You know, we're not supposed to talk about death we're not supposed to talk about much less cheer it on like when the person you don't like like when that guy who's a big jerk gets killed early in the movie you're like yes (laughs) he had it coming good right and but otherwise we're like oh my gosh i'm just i just cheered on the death of a human being like but that guy had it coming right it's different where you can express this more macabre side of you yeah it's it's catharsis i guess it is who doesn't who doesn't love watching you know some and there's uh, a lot to be said about the underlying themes of horror movies 
and um, just really any genre of film, it's always more than what it appears. Like uh, with the Friday the 13th films, they Which always I just rewatched all of them right in the last couple of months. <laughs> How? <laughs> They're so they're so bad. That exactly. Well, because I so I live tweet my my thing every every October. I just watch as many horror movies as I can because I love them. Mm-hmm. But one thing I do is I live tweet, kind of as I'm watching how I would do differently. Right. Not as a filmmaker, but if I was in that room and that was happening. Yeah. Because almost oh, it's so frustrating to see women in horror movies so many times. It's like okay, so. In Friday the 13th, like, okay, they were fooling around and the man has just gotten stabbed. Mm -hmm. Your options are start beating the crap out of the serial killer or stand in the corner and scream. Mm -hmm. So she's going to stand in the corner and scream. So I'm always like, here's what I would do differently. I would pick up that chair right there and I would hit him now. Right. You know, so I'm always thinking of how I would kick the ass of the serial killer. Something that you you mentioned there, though, is the the teenagers fooling around thing, which is a common theme in the Friday the 13th. It's always it's always. um, People who are doing the taboo thing get sure. punished and everything right. like that. Yeah, and, there and, is like morality right. stuff in That's there. That's a total slasher trope. Too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look at Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, the virgin, the virgin. Basically, yeah, yeah. she's yeah. the final girl because she's the only one that doesn't. She's you know she is the babysitter and she does what she's supposed to do. She protects right. the kids, so she lives. Yeah. I mean, they even put her in white in so much yeah. of that film. Yeah, or I like Nightmare on Elm Street, the first people that die in that movie, or is Johnny Depp the first person that dies? I can't remember. He gets pulled into the bed. He at does. Some point. Yeah. I just remember there's that scene where the two are having sex, and then the girl gets like uh, splayed around the room. Freddie's yeah. like lifting her up. Or I whatever. think that's yeah. the first big kill. Yeah. That one. Yeah. Great. And that's all, yeah, that's just a total trope. And we've seen the deconstruction of that trope in movies like It Follows, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the entire logic of the monster is predicated on sexual intercourse. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> but then I think within within horror, there there's different things that are, um, I, I mean, to me, the serial killer one is always so much scarier than, I mean, I know some people super love the monster ones. Like, sure. the monsters are not relatable. The serial killer Everybody thinks about that. Like, I live alone, and if there's a weird noise, I, like, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pop around this corner, and I'm going to have to hit somebody because someone is clearly broken in my apartment. <laughs> oh, that's the fridge. Okay, whatever. <laughs> right? Like, so in in the, I guess it's the second Friday the 13th, they, they all kind of run together at some point. Oh, eventually, yeah. <laughs> I think it's the second one that opens- Part two, or- Yeah. Okay. It, where she, she's in her apartment alone, and like the cat jumps in the window, and then she- Gets whacked in that the second one. I can't remember. I know. Again, they all run together. Yeah. But like that one, that's that's a scary scene because I think anybody, like we've all thought about someone jumping into your apartment and attacking you, Mm -hmm. and how real that would be. You know, I think especially women, that's that's like that's a very real monster, Mm -hmm. and and so that's why I think some of them are so hard to relate to. But like even Children of the Corn, there's a human element. We're like, you know, I do know a creepy kid. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. He might kill all the adults in the neighborhood or in the entire town (laughs) and start worshiping a corn demon. You know. (laughs) I could see all the adults being bad. Great. What What are your favorite movies? Do you have a particular set of horror movies that you're just like, I'm going to watch. I watch these every single year. Like when I, it gets I'm to Halloween not time. I'm too big of a rewatcher. Sure. A, a lot of time has to go by. Um, I, I mean, I always, I, I don't care. Like I'll watch any kind of horror movie. I, I, I recently finally sat down and watched Abe Lincoln Vampire. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> and I was woof. like, oh man. Yeah, woof is right. <laughs> yeah, what did you think of it? Um, well, I mean- you know, I I hit pause a lot during movies. Usually, like, I'll, I'll watch it all the way through, and then I'll rewind to something, because I'm like, I got to see that part again. Mm. The thing that I decided to rewind to was that dreadful horse scene. Yep. In which he's, the horse stampede is coming at him, and they, like, 
some director of photography was like, I'm going to show off some tricks in which we see like a horse nostril up close, running at Abe. Like those kind of, that, that was a things. little weird to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I didn't hate it as much as I thought that I was going to. Yeah. That <laughs> whole, like you mentioned uh, in the interview, the whole like crossed over between yeah. classic literature and And that horror. was in that, that was that part of that genre where, yeah. where those two things kind of, it, you take something like <clears throat> so unassailably you know classic uh, classic and iconic and then you add this element to it so i was like okay well that's kind of interesting to think maybe yeah cool let's think about abe lincoln having the secret life killing vampires okay i'm game sure let's do that well something i was curious about during that interview was um horror and you you kind of touched on it connor with people being like really anti-horror like some people they're just like horror is stupid it's all the same thing yeah and then you've got the real horror horror hounds that love it and i i feel that genre film and horror kind of get put in this little compartment that says this is where horror gets to play it doesn't get to be like a critical critically acclaimed it doesn't get to enter the canon of great cinema unless it crosses over into like kubrick yeah exactly yeah. like dramatic yeah. yeah like the exorcist i think the exorcist is hands down not only one of the best horror movies ever made but one of the best movies ever made well you know what we were talking about the exorcist before like a couple weeks ago you and i were talking yeah. about how how what's triggering to some people like not so much to the others right because sure. you were talking about um, why the exorcist scared the crap out of you. Yeah, with that, like, you grow up Catholic, the exorcist is literally just it's the, the entire, worst. yeah, in, in in film, it is everything you hated about being Catholic growing up. And see, I'm not Catholic, and, like, that didn't, like, any just, of that kind of, like, iconography didn't even, I mean, I went to, I, I was, you know, pretty young when I saw that, and immediately I was like, oh, mental illness. Yeah, like I didn't. I I skipped over the demon part and went right to like, oh, she's a very sick young. I woman. was like, Fa- wow. Father Murphy was right. He warned me. <laughs> you know what? I just just read yesterday about that. I did not know about the Exorcist was they had um, audio of just low key audio going of bees. No, in that film, underscoring like very low level underscoring so many scenes in that just because that was that's such a trigger for so many people to be unnerved yeah even like you hear the buzzing if you're if even it's like barely audible it's just there enough to make your brain just make you uncomfortable which i thought (sighs) what a brilliant and crazy thing to do that would explain a lot yeah now the one that did scare me to death was the shining because my my dad is in that industry and so we he he and my mom were winter caretakers of a hotel so when i saw that i was like oh hell no because i knew (laughs) like i know exactly that hotel was terrifying it is a scary hotel it was creepy and i remember like when i was little being like i'm not going in that room i mean you even mentioned that you when you your parents were taking care of one of the hotels you would ride like your bike in the hotel oh yeah i played like ran you were Danny. Crazy. I was Danny. There were no oh, twins man. or no things. Like what's creepy about that particular hotel, it's on a mountain. And so there is – and it's the same – like it's a big monolith kind of building like the one in The Shining. Like there's so many similarities. Different part of the country but nonetheless. Um, there's a it, there's a very large fireplace and, and I remember like you have to stand in it to pull the flue closed to shut it down. And on one side of that fireplace there is a photo of kind of the day they broke ground. And so he's like Civil War looking prospector kind of dudes. Yeah. And 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 it's probably 300, 350 guys in this picture. And then on the other side of the, of the fireplace it's when they finished it and got to the ribbon cutting. And there's like 50 left. 
And, and there's hardly, because you're hauling boulders up a hill, so yeah. all these men were crushed to death. And it had a role in like Civil War time, like all, like oh all kind of, like that land, you know. So there's a lot going on there, and it's kind of an emotionally charged spot. And then you add in a hotel, and then you add in like there was, like F. Scott Fitzgerald stayed there, and so there's all this stuff about Zelda Fitzgerald showing up after. Oh, like there's boy. a lot of stuff. And, and I think when you're a little kid, you know, things get socialized out of us as adults. But when yeah. you're kids, you're like, no, there's a lady in the basement. No, there's not. That's your imagination. No, I saw, you know, like maybe you're seeing something supernatural or believing you did mm-hmm. or something. But uh, so I think to like be in such a, um, you know, active or volatile environment when you're a kid, it, it's not that weird to be like, oh, no, there's lots of people here. Like it feels busy yeah, or, right. so, you know, spooky like that. And there's no real great place to be isolated, you know. Like if you're in a small room or whether you're in a small room or in a huge, massive, empty hotel, that sort of element of cabin fever always it's still like it always creeps in, you know. It, well, I think what's interesting about the about the shining, it's it's twofold because you got you have cabin fever and you have absolute um, you're absolutely on your own. It's absolute isolationism mm-hmm. that no one will hear me screaming. Yeah. You know, and the one guy that can. Like the one guy, he's gonna get whacked. Is yeah. the guy that's yeah, <laughs> right? It's the only other person is the guy that know. is try is causing the screaming. Oh God! Right. So the, you know, there's all this uh, this kind of I think that's twofold in, in that like mm-hmm. um, like to me I think cabin fever is kind of appealing. I've been like that'd be great. Not talking to anybody <laughs> for a little while that'd be okay. But the part about like but I would be a sitting duck if something happened. I would have no no one could hear me screaming. Nothing could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, no one no one could help me. I think that part is really quite scary. Yeah. That's what that's why Alien got to me as a kid. I've I've always really loved Alien because of that isolation factor, the claustrophobia. Absolutely, it's um not only is Alien great because mm-hmm. it flips the final girl trope on its mm-hmm, head mm-hmm. by making Ripley the only one capable enough and smart enough to actually survive the entire ordeal, but by the time you get to the end, like just the claustrophobia of going through these corridors of this ship, and you're the only one, and you're being literally hunted by something that will absolutely just get rid of you if it's give given the chance that just uh be and i feel like i had to watch it when i was young in order to really get the full effect because if i can definitely see if someone watched something maybe even like the shining now maybe i don't know with the with the way horror went do you think maybe people are not as prone to being scared by things like the shining because The Shining, when it came out, that was, like, terrifying. But you come, th- oh, like, 30 years on now, and um, peop- I feel like people have seen it all. I don't care who you are. If you watch that show when you're, you know, like, younger than 15 or something, that scene with the twins and the cuts, the fast cuts to them being chopped up on the ground, that is horrifying. But now you've got, like, Saw. Have, have either of you seen the Saw yeah. movie? Yeah, yeah, sure. Like, re- where could you possibly go from there in yeah. terms of pure unnerving? We At the theater I work at, we just got Jigsaw, the latest entry, which is I think is number eight or nine in the mm-hmm. series. Yeah. They're going for the full Friday the 13th, like, ridiculously long series. But um, I'm just watching it, and it's people with buckets on their head being pulled literally to their dooms, being chopped up. They have a shot of a guy whose head has literally been lopped off, like mm-hmm. lopped in half, and you see his brain. And I, I just wonder to myself, could you ever go back to that sort of really atmospheric yeah. um, 
dis- not scary but disturbing and something that really stays with you like the shining yeah. after you've seen and I think experienced that requiem for a dream mm. is a scarier movie than any of the saw movies i've ever seen but, but it's still got that kind of body that body horror where it's like you know, and spoiler it's, alert, you should have seen Requiem for a Dream by now, where Jared Leto gets his arm cut off by a saw. Right. And it's got the crazy music and it's very disorienting. I'm, I feel like that's kind of in the same sense of uh, just they're trying to overwhelm you. The thing about well, The Shining for me is that is the way that I it, reson, it resonates with me because of the family dynamic. And that is the right. thing that I, get, I can put myself in Danny's shoes and said, what if my father went crazy and tried to murder me, how would I feel about that? Mm-hmm. And I sort of feel the similar way about um, uh, the mother in Requiem for a Dream, which is, yeah. I, I, she reminds me of my grandmother. And and just like the sort of like the way that she goes through that, mm-hmm. you know, the like whole diet pill situation is mm-hmm. was unbelievable. And that is just, it's just that sort of like empathetic connection that I have with you know, like actually well-written characters. And that is why I'm more disturbed by The Shining and will always be more disturbed by The Shining or Requiem for a Dream than something like Saw, where people's heads are getting chopped off. Well, so interesting point there, right? Like, to me, that speaks to how well The Shining was made and how developed those characters are. Because, like, I, I also was pretty young when I saw that. And I, based on my life experience, identify with Danny. But then... Seeing that as an adult, I identify much more with the mom and think, look at this woman. She is completely at the mercy of this man who, you know, is supposed to be her partner in life and supposed to protect her. So to it, to me, it becomes it's less about a scary kid versus the world. And then as an adult, it became about domestic violence and about like like men and women and, and like this whole other thing emerged, which is really interesting. And I think projects like that really have the ability to speak to you at different points in your life in different mm-hmm. ways. With stuff like Saw, I think that is also because I'm sure I've ranted somewhere on some show, but definitely on this station, about how The Simpsons changed so much, right? Yeah. Like, at, at some point, it was it was, like, smart and sharp and good, and then it started to slip into this beat-a-dead-horse kind of comedy. True. And for a while, it was very overt. I think we're pulling off that a little bit and going a little more subtle again, maybe, hopefully. But for a while, last couple of years, it's just been, like, all things, all shows were just, like, I get it. Mm-hmm. Like Seth MacFarlane, I get it, right? Like so yeah. much of that beat a dead horse with like Family Guy and all that, yeah. like joking the joke and then joking the joke of the joke yeah. kept going. I think stuff like Saw is like that. Like it, you have to go. Yeah. Like once you've seen a, a head sawed in half, like what? where do you go from here? Because, yeah. but to me, yeah, stuff like Requiem for a Dream and Shining, like where you don't necessarily see the monster or the monster is something so familiar it takes you a minute to see it. That's much more terrifying than so overtly like, wow, that dude just got sawed in half. And I, I uh, pointing to uh, what you mentioned in the interview with A24 and their kind of string of thrillers slash horror films. Yeah. I think that's exactly, uh, Amy, what would be used to describe movies like The Witch mm-hmm. or uh, more recently, one of my favorite films of the year, It Comes at Night. And I love It Comes at Night because the way they marketed it to people was, and even if you just see the title, It Comes at Night. Okay, so we can rightfully assume that there is something and it's going to appear during the nighttime. And like it's a monster. Be and, creepy. Yeah, and during the entire movie, spoiler alert, uh, nothing ever, there's no creature per se, there's no it thing, there's no thing that comes at night. 
And some people I know when I saw it in theaters, they walked away from it like, so what came at night? And I'm like, now you can watch the movie again. Right, right. Yeah. Now you're ready to really see what you're talking about. And um, maybe I'd say that is in the, the vein of something like The Shining, where it's like there's no monster. There's It's not a ghost story necessarily. Like Stephen King <clears throat> intended it for it to be kind of a ghost story, I think. I know Stephen King absolutely hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining yes. yeah. uh, with a passion. It's so much so that he decided to make a terrible made-for-TV version. That he's like, "This is the real Shining," and everyone's like, "Okay, <laughs> no, well, that's bro. never mind. <laughs> never mind. Go back to go make Maximum Overdrive, or you know." <laughs> but uh, I think Stanley Kubrick really understood what the real horror of The Shining was was yeah. of the of the scenario. Yeah, and that's why it's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, not Stephen King's. That's right. The Shining. Yeah. Well, I think another interesting thing with you know things like why we have to elevate things to such overt gore like Saul, right? Because kind of that cabin in the woods thing doesn't work as well anymore because mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to be as disconnected as you could in the 70s. To the point where we literally have a movie called Cabin in the Woods right. that sat, that like deconstructs the horror yeah. genre. Right. One of the most successful movies I've ever seen at doing that, Yeah, too, I yeah. think. But, but but nonetheless, that's a little bit harder sell now because you're like, why don't you just call somebody? Why don't you just text your bro yeah, and right. get some help? Whereas things like Alien, um, I might even throw in, not necessarily scary, but certainly high drama was The Abyss. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've still never seen that. That's a really, I mean, because those, you know, you are definitely limited by the wall of this vessel you are mm-hmm. in. You know the vacuum of space will kill you. You know to take off your helmet, you will drown. You know, mm-hmm. like, the elements will just work against you, and it kind of points to, like, the, the fragility of human beings. Mm-hmm. And th- so there's this other element where no matter what, you know, on the other side of this wall, I, I can either face this alien or be sucked into the vacuum of space. Yeah. Those are my choices, and they both are terrible <laughs> right now, you know? So I think that's kind of a, another... But that to me, that's just that's a, a, another layer of atmosphere, that that like space played space was a character yeah. in alien really because it's there and it's menacing and it didn't have to do anything no. it just had to sit there and be outside the set you know and be outside that's just the environment the environment yeah. is now your enemy yeah and horror is kind of a treacherous genre it's got to be difficult you know more so than i feel like any other genre in the in the sense that like it has to be kind of internally consistent yeah well i I just think that there if the goal of the movie is to be is to scare its audience or instill some sort of emotion in its audience that's ultimately unsettling that's got to be way more at least when i'm thinking about how somebody would go about executing that um it's got to be way more difficult than just exciting an audience with like explosions and beautiful cinematography. Yeah. 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 Or like a comedy, which is, I feel like the closest funnily enough, like probably the closest genre. Yeah. Cause you have to, you have to bear in mind the psychology of your, of your audience and, and because you're, you're ultimately trying to manipulate that. Yeah. You're you're, trying to get them to laugh in comedy. You're trying to get them to be terrified. You're appealing to some of their most base instincts, some of their most base like emotions of, which is why I think Connor and I have talked about this in the past, why horror comedy is such a great genre pairing. Yeah. Because the setup of a scare is the same as the setup of a Mm, joke. That's a great point. And uh, you're appealing to literally 
people's most outward emotions. Like when you're scared, you scream, you shiver, you can't you be freak cool. out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you're, you want to share the, that feeling with other people because yeah. it makes you feel better. Watching horror alone is cool, but watching horror with your friends is primo. It and watching so comedies yeah. is the same way. Same deal. You want to laugh and you want to share that with other people because mm-hmm. it yeah. feels good to do that. You know, another film that I think would fall into that category of of the environment playing such a role is another one I watched kind of recently. Interesting. I'm curious your take on it. It was um, 30 Days of Night. Oh, yeah. I, I liked it. Yeah. I didn't love it. I think it's – I think – it was really cool. It's a, it's an adaptation, which I, yeah. I'm totally down for adaptations, especially of uh, genre comic books and stuff like that. I thought, like, it was a good turn on the vampire genre. Yeah. I like that it was – I mean, it's just a cool concept. Yeah, you're just and the like, idea you're stuck that, in, Have you seen it, Connor? That's like the Arctic base vampire. Yeah, Josh yeah. Hartnett, right? Yeah. Right. And yeah. It's, right, so the setup for this film – and this is just, like, me on the October horror-watching bender, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I really – I thought, like – Josh Hartnett, he's like in a bunch of kind of like sophomoric comedy stuff. Pearl so, Harbor. Like, what's yeah. this going to be? Like, I don't know what this is going to be. So I was like, ah, whatever, vampires, sure. Um, but it, yeah, so it's like this northern city that that's so um, so far north that for 30 days it's complete darkness. So these, you know, vampires. I mean, if I was a vampire, I'd be like, score. Yeah. It's a buffet. <laughs> it's a little cold. This is but... the Vegas for vampires, like, right Ooh. now. So so they show up. But and, and I liked how the vampires were represented because they were they were a lot different. They were challenging. They weren't like the, I don't know, they were just different kind of vampires. They weren't sexy. They weren't. Thank God. They weren't <laughs> sexy. They weren't, I mean, they weren't sparkly vampires. They weren't, I mean, I think, um, what is that? Twilight. Twi- thank yeah. you. Twilight. The sparkly vampires. Like that got so weird. Yeah. I couldn't even finish that. There are very few films I could not finish. That is one of them. <laughs> but I was just like, oh my God. Like the seductive nature of vampire cult lore or whatever is cool. Yeah. But like in more of a, in a classical sense, I think it was cool. The Twilight took it and just. Well, it put, it put like virginity and morality and purity and, and like all kind of abstinence stuff over it yeah but i was like can we not yeah. vampires so are sexy don't make them yeah weird so yeah. it's kind of cool to see it's sort of like a zombie vampire yeah, yeah. It's animalistic it was and like they're even like i found the language very scary like mm-hmm. at one point he the head vampire dude you know he he's like speaking to the guy that's in the jail cell waiting and mm-hmm. wanting to be taken and he just kind of makes this like click noise and, and but the subtitle is like You've betrayed us, and I was like, "Whoa, that's really scary and creepy and weird." Because <laughs> he just he like opens his mouth for several minutes, like a cat is about to hiss, and then he just kind of. And I was like, "That's that's a whole sentence." Whoa, <laughs> like that's really creepy. That's what I call efficiency. Yeah, that's effective communication right there. <laughs> right, we gotta get in on that language. Yeah. So I thought that because because you know you have the you have kind of two external characters there. You have. You cannot survive the elements. You're going to freeze to death if you stay out there. And you have the deadline because they keep counting down the days. It's like right. day seven. You're like two days to go. And you're just like, oh, my God, in 48 hours. Don't do that. You're going to regret it in 48 yeah. hours. Oh, man. You know, things like that. I think there's like two very hard stops that are never really never really shown, but they're there kind of creating creating that yeah. tension. That's and that's integral. Is when you're when you're doing that type of horror, you got to have the tension. You have to, it's all about building tension and then release. Yeah, tension yeah. and release. And I like. I mean, timers are always fun in in horror. When you put something on the clock, it gives people a frame of reference for how quickly or slowly something is happening. So like that's why Thirty Days a Night is so great because you it makes you realize, wow, thirty days 
is a long time. To be time. hunted for to 30 days. To be hunted days. for literally 30 days. Yeah, that's a long time. I mean, I think there's always kind of that thing that exists in, in any kind of vampire movie. There's there's the like classical what you know about vampires, like silver yeah. bullets kill werewolves or sunlight can vampire, you know. Like I was thinking of that because I rewatched Lost Boys. Oh. <laughs> And I was like, oh, man, this one does not hold up as well. No, <laughs> as well, Kiefer Sutherland, I mean, let's not lie. That guy was a, he was a smoke show. He was a man dime. Still is. But <laughs> that, uh, that movie is very of its time. And very it's enjoyable its in that it sense. Yeah. But if you, like, hold it up to modern standards, you're like, woof. Oh, I know. I was like, oh, man. And then and you kind of forget because they're like, oh, these are kind of different vampires because they're just kind of these, like, punk jerks yeah, yeah it's like if billy idol only came out at night <laughs> have you ever seen him during the day oh. <laughs> i mean just saying that's true but then you kind of forget and then when when the kids go into the cave to kind of liberate you know jamie gertz and all that and the kid there's alex winter exposed to sunlight and burned and you're mm-hmm. like oh right there okay that's oh yeah and so that kind of takes you back to traditional vampire stuff mm-hmm. oh right sunlight this stake through the heart da, 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 yeah da. i like yeah. that it does keep that we do kind of have this accepted um idea and canon of what a vampire is and like what can and can't hurt a vampire even within twilight it's like sunlight still hurts it makes a them vampire. less sparkly yeah it makes <laughs> god <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's that's that's something I've always thought was kind of interesting. Was in horror, there is always this kind of accepted set of rules for for better or for worse. And when you break that accepted set of rules, you can either come off as subversive or as like sacrilegious yeah, yeah. because of that horror community. It's like, well, if you're gonna make uh, a Halloween movie, you're gonna make something with Michael Myers in it. It has to be this, 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 mm-hmm. and this, and you have to do this. And um, if you go Beyond that, if you step outside the bounds of what's kind of accepted, you can really become kind of a pariah. Yeah. If you don't do it really smart and well, like making an entire language off of a weird yeah, vocal a weird click, click, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was an interesting – I think I've talked about this on this show before. Um, I heard Gail Ann Heard speaking at an event, and she was talking about um, Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. And to her, she was like, horror, schmar, whatever. It's not about killing to me. This is a morality tale because in a in a time in which zombies are after us, it is you against the world, survival of the fittest. The only thing keeping order is your moral compass, and that's it. And and there's really there, – it's not about the law of the land. It's the law of your own being, which I thought was kind of an interesting uh, – you know, an interesting moment to think about that. So I wonder, too – we had we had big vampire moments, lots mm-hmm. of sparkly vampires, lots of that. Mm-hmm. We we had zombie time. Like, what is the next thing that's going to represent us culturally? I think I think I think the zombie time might be kind of up because I think what that represented was the the sense of personal identity that it could be right. me against the world. I, I mean, people joke anytime you do something really badass in your life, people go, oh, you know, in the zombie apocalypse, I want you on my yeah. team. Like that's that's a badge of honor that you say to someone when they seem like someone who would survive something. So what is that next thing that's going to be the the big scary icon? I don't know. I think two words, period pieces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like I, I think we could be on the precipice of a slasher revival. Okay. Because I think people are starting to get afraid of that again. 
Um, I don't know if – well, or maybe I think realistically it's going to be what uh, some people have called the, the socially conscious yeah, or something kidding. like uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out yeah. because that was – it it was just flat out insane. At the theater yeah. I worked at, that movie was the highest grossing movie we'd had in our entire existence as a film projecting theater. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, over a hundred years, like wow. that movie ha- did the most business we ever did in a single day. Okay. And we're, I mean, it's a small theater, four screens, and people for weeks weeks and weeks and weeks were just lining up to see mm. get out because it was so well made but it really spoke to the culture jordan peele is an incredibly yeah. intelligent filmmaker and writer in that sense both in his comedy and uh in get out he really saw the parallels of what i'm doing in my comedy which is very socially conscious very speaking about the modern black experience and making it like accessible and very obvious for people who are not privy to that black experience. Mm -hmm. Anybody could walk in to get out. And I think they would walk out saying, wow, I think I have a sort of empathetic understanding now of what the, a a black person goes through being surrounded by white people, or at least a slightly expanded, a slightly expanded consciousness. And I can see where the horror comes from. And this kind of social tension. Mm-hmm. So he's on pace to be making more of these socially conscious mm-hmm. horror or just socially conscious sort of genre films because yeah. he got his first look deal with Universal, which is fantastic. Yeah. So I think it would be nice to see more of those, something that captures the the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. the like the consciousness of what's going on. Yeah. Um, I think slashers could factor into that. Mm -hmm. I think it's been a long time since we've seen a good slasher. We talked about this last week. Um, I think the last really good slasher I saw was Scream. Yeah, Mm, I think that's the last one that really did something because we had quite a few remakes over the last 10 years. We had two Halloween films by Rob Zombie. We had a Friday the 13th Mm -hmm. uh, remake. I think... uh, we're ready for slashers to become really scary again and something that's really unnerving. At the very least, I think that we could probably all agree that horror movie fans of horror movie and just audiences in general need their horror movies to be a little bit more intelligent. And to your point about people who leave left seeing a movie like get out, they walked out with a little bit of an expanded perspective, the role of like education in these horror movies is definitely an interesting thing that I, at the very least, am sort of expecting now hmm. with horror movies. You know, hmm. like, that's interesting. I, I think I think there's there's a hunger for that. I mean, yeah. I think that could be that could go really well, and I think it's necessary not only socially and culturally right now, but I think there's a lot of negative yardage in in that genre um, for. Like to make up for so much sexism and racism. Right. I mean, if you like going back and watching the Friday Thirteenth franchise recently, I was like, "Wow, it is raw racist." Yes. I don't remember it being this racist, but like, sure enough, like the biker gang. Absolutely. They're dead so fast, but then like the one guy makes it, saves the white woman at the end, and gets killed. Yeah. And you don't ever connect with that character. He's just there to save the white woman. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't yeah. remember. I didn't remember that part, but I was like, holy racism. And it's weird because subversion of these tropes goes back to the birth of the genre itself in the sense that uh so like night of the living dead 
uh, very famously comment and, and, and George Romero even said, oh, I didn't even really think of it this mm-hmm. way. But at the end of Night of the Living Dead, everyone else is dead except for the the black character, the main black character. But he gets killed by a white like police officer. Mm-hmm. And that was released at like kind of the height of the Vietnam era. And what a commentary. And, um, you know, George Romero, even unintentionally, he, he was doing it because he's just like, this dude's the lead. So I want him to make it to the end and then he's going to get killed. But I don't think he even realized how important it was to sh- that that imagery was was so relevant. And it's kind of sad that horror went into this period of being kind of like uh very male gazy very yeah. ma- very yeah. like male dominated and um women are definitely getting back into it because women have been so involved with horror i think mm-hmm. for the entire time but it's kind of this invisible mm-hmm. sort of thing but um i know there was a horror anthology called xx that was mm-hmm. released very recently all female horror uh shorts um the film raw which if you have not seen it it's on netflix right now it's about a a french girl it's it's all in french directed by a a french filmmaker i believe it was written by her as well and um it's about a french girl that goes to veterinary veterinary school right yeah Yeah. and she becomes a cannibal oh and it's really good it's all about female it's all about sexual desire especially the female body Mm -hmm. and this kind of like pubescent thing it's Mm. it's fantastic I loved it when I saw it at the Music Box. I've I've seen it twice or more just That's on Netflix. It's don't, so good. Don't eat. <laughs> yeah, no, or please. Not, not for di- dinner time. No. That, this is the thing: is I'm watching all these movies. I usually am eating dinner as I'm watching them, and I'm like, eww, eww, gross. <laughs> Suddenly, this extra rare steak does not, not so look much, so right? stroganoff was a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, you know, that's interesting. I, I was thinking about um, as I was watching the rewatching Friday the 13th and even a little bit in Lost Boys. I, I'm always I'm often thinking about how women's desire and pleasure is represented on the screen and in even small screen, even uh, television commercials. I mean, I tweeted just recently. I was like, I cannot believe like yet again, it seems like women's desire is only OK and welcome and safe if it's about yogurt or chocolate <laughs> Yeah. Or I mean, or like the joint health supplement. That's the only oh time you God. see a woman out there like, I'm hiking these trails or I'm doing this <laughs> awesome thing. Or like, mm, this yogurt is delicious. It's like that's the only time there's pleasure. <laughs> but but like, God forbid it's any other time. Whereas we see like the Cialis ad and there's like a woman interested in the man. But it's mm-hmm. not it's not just about her pleasure. It's about the couplehood and, and probably pleasing him because he's just, you know. So I was thinking because about this. Because it's his boner that doesn't he's work. Going through, the pill, he's right. going through a hard time or lack thereof. Yes. That's right, right. So I was thinking about that and, and interestingly kind of noted that in the Friday the 13th franchise, there's a lot of naked women. There's a lot of like, I'm going to go to my cabin and go to bed now that we're all really stoned and I'm just going to walk around in my underwear for a little while. Ooh. Hope a killer's not outside looking at me. Like there's a <laughs> lot of that going on, which I think, you know, when you're watching horror movies in groups, there's there's always a like, put your robe on. Like, no, yeah. it's not about covering yourself. It's about how about let's not have a psycho in the woods looking at me. Like yeah. it's not on her to do that. But But usually where we see, like we see a couple of times where – a woman goes back to the cabin. She is alone because she's fixing up in advance of hooking up with a dude. Right. Like, I'm going to go back to my cabin and change clothes. And she's, like, putting on different underwear and, like, fixing up in the mirror. And the killer's watching her do that. And so it's, like, she's getting joy out of this kind of, like, 
you know. I'm going to please this man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like she's getting joy out of this ritual of getting herself put together and freshening up. Wow. But it's like in advance of having sex with this dude. Yeah. And so there's, you know, I think the closest where it's sort of like you see some liberation in a minute for a minute is she one of the women gets in a fight like they're gonna go skinny dipping and she's like well screw you I'm gonna go skinny dipping by myself so she sort of hops in but but she keeps calling to him nonetheless she keeps like hey where are you and then yeah. she gets in the raft and gets killed right yeah but but like for a minute it, there's a little bit like well you know what forget that guy I'm just gonna jump in the lake naked anyway forget him. Mm-hmm. But but more and more, like you, once you kind of get it in your head, it's almost impossible not to see it everywhere. There's mm-hmm. so much of that. And even like a little bit in Lost Boys, you see a little bit of like it was all about Jamie Gertz as property. Is she property of these vampires? Is she property yeah. of this guy who's trying so hard not to be a vampire? You know, <laughs> and, and the mom, right? Like the head vampire is dating the mom of these boys. And it's really all about possessing her with mm-hmm. this with the, you know, vampire vibe. So I, I think, you know, once you kind of start seeing it in horror, there's a lot of it. So I think the, there's a, a lot of room for for women to be a lot of different things in horror movies. Like, we need more... I wouldn't mind more women killers in horror movies. Even. Right. Like, the drama genre, it's a pretty mature genre. The horror genre has ways to go. So we can definitely see, you know, I definitely think that uh, horror is going to be around and we're going to get to see a lot of different different types of horror movies mm-hmm. yeah i mean there there's a book that that um I'm, I'm reading right now it's called lady killers and it's all about female female serial killers it's really good it's by tori telfer it's really fascinating and i interviewed her and we had this this conversation about female killers and and it almost wouldn't work as well because we were pointing at um when Charlize Theron played Eileen Warnos mm-hmm. and how like the dialogue around that film was so different and, and even the dialogue around the actual murders during that time it was so different than when you have a male serial killer. It's almost like we have an expectation like, oh, yeah, he flipped a switch. Whereas for a woman, like we, we need several more layers of reasoning of why a woman would do that and right. go do all that killing. Yeah. It was like, well you know, she was being abused or this happened or she was fighting to survive. Like it's so implausible in mm-hmm. so many minds that a woman could do something that savage. Whereas we have like Jason say in the Friday the yeah. 13th, like who just does, he just drowned and he had like a yeah. psycho mom. <laughs> that was yeah. about it. Or like American psycho where mm. if you watch that at like a frat house, you find people like secretly or outwardly enjoying or thinking that Patrick Bateman is like a cool guy. Mm, you know? That's a good point. You're just like they, he's like, yeah, kill those hookers, and you're just like, oh wow, yeah, yeah. So there cool. are some displays of of like a completely unchecked masculine and, power and, and toxicity. And the funny thing about American Psycho, directed by a woman, yeah, very yeah, and, to, and and she really got some people really hate the book, um, and really didn't get what it was trying to say. The director of American Psycho totally got it. She's like, dude, this is all mm-hmm. about male power fantasy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was so – and then um, I love just at the end that the male power fantasy gets neutered because then yeah. it leaves it up. Oh, my God. Was it all just in his head? Did he really – was he really that ineffectual? Yeah. Like he thought, yeah, I'm doing this. I'm killing all these women. I'm, I'm living my fantasy. And then it turns out it was all in his head at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. That's so a great just point. A, just a genius. Mary Heron, that's her name. Yeah. Bless Mary Heron, because that is <laughs> such a good movie. Yeah. But it does bring out the worst. It brings out the Patrick Batemans in the room. If you sure. Show That's a great point. That's a great point. You know, something else I just thought of about why maybe horror is so attractive to to um, early film career folk is I think when um, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer was made, you know, that's mm-hmm. such a notoriously like a 
that's such a beautiful success story that's, you know, it was made for like $500 by two University of Texas students that's just legendary. And it did so well because it's so dark and there's so many disturbing things in it mm-hmm. that, that I think there, it was sort of this, like an olive branch of possibility. Of yeah. Like, you know what? You can do something kick-ass and scary for 500 bucks. Like, you can do something yeah. very, very inexpensively and and it's really you know what you lack in funds you can make up for intellectually and psychologically yeah so maybe it, like the punk rock element like yeah, uh, yeah. Josh was talking about I yeah. loved that quote that he said there's a I wrote down there's a little bit of punk rock to being a genre filmmaker mm-hmm. I love that that's very true that's that yeah he he nailed it with that and that's something we we see all the time when we're talking to our guests here on No Coast is uh, it really takes. A certain, especially, and I think Chicago really has it. I think almost every filmmaker I've met here in Chicago really has that kind of DIY punk like fuck attitude. you attitude. Yeah, exactly. They just they're the, I'm going to make this movie with so little money, working a day job. Like I'm going to make this happen, and I don't care if you think it's stupid or if it's too campy or if it's too this, this is going to be it. And it always ends up being really great and having a lot of heart. And that's just the horror genre. And Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, oh, my God, what a movie. Mm-hmm. And to, to know that that was made for so little, it really um, it means that there was a lot of hard work put into it. And that's, yeah. what, that's what makes it great. It's not production value, although I'm sure everybody would have liked to have been paid a little bit more. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's not about the production value. It's about what you can do with what you're given. Yeah, and that's a good point about Chicago because, you know, every every big hub city kind of has its thing that is a badge of honor. And here it's labor. Yeah. It always has been labor. It's music scene, film art. Just the art scene in general is all about hard work. And I think a lot of people represent that in the art that they make. I mean, um, City of Broad Shoulders. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we look at New York and L.A., it, it's about – it's about bragging about connection and who you know. And here it's like, I don't care. Yeah, it's yeah. like your breaks, right? It's yeah. like your what? It's like you get breaks yeah. in those cities. Right, right. Because I, I schmoozed this person. I got into this party. I did this thing. And it's very social climby. But it's like Chicago is an okay place to be an introvert and be like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to hustle. Yeah. I'm going to work hard. And everybody, like it, when you get to know, I mean, you'll just meet the same people generally as, as right. in any sort of community. But you don't have to like, no, like Joe Schwamberg operates out of Chicago and he does his, you know, vision of Chicago a lot. But you don't need to like know Joe Schwamberg to be a successful filmmaker. Right. You just might meet him and you might be like, oh, man, I love your stuff. Oh, man, I love your stuff. Like and maybe you'll do something later on. Maybe you won't and right. you'll never see each other. again. Well, and I think part of it being a city so entrenched in labor is there's an inherent uh, comradeship. Yeah. You know, that that it's less about gatekeeping and power structures and a lot more about like who who are my people in the trenches here with mm-hmm. me doing this thing. And, you know, when I moved to Chicago, I had been in New York for a couple of years before that. And I found it so refreshing that it that even going as a writer where you're not dealing with a lot of people yeah. very regularly, you're not dealing with a lot of human beings. You're sitting there writing and you're like 
on the phone with an editor or maybe, but that's about it. You know, even then I felt just the community of writers here and the community of journalists was very different than I had experienced in mm-hmm. New York. So, you know, I think a, I, there is like comradeship in, in a very different way, in a palpable way in Chicago that, that, that extends to the film community. And the recognition that Chicago is getting, it's we're, I think we're really seeing the beginning of the bell curve. Totally agree. Because you've got um, open TV amazing platform for lgbtqa like that Mm -hmm. community Mm -hmm. to make film and short film short series and all that kind of stuff uh brown girls was picked up by hbo and open tv was featured on the new city 50 uh film 50 comfort film who we spoke to uh raul benitez and nando espinoza uh very recently and i know connor and i have gone to gone to comfort film a couple times and uh featured on the new city 50 uh, I'm trying to think. Well, and we have some know. major television productions yeah. being filmed here, so it's possible to have you. You can be an actor, and you can work in in you know you can crew and actually earn a living and not starve here. You know, it's actually possible to do now. Yeah, and we have things like um, you know we have like all these wonderful incubator programs and all these things that are happening to really keep filmmaking here which I think is really important because we you know for the longest time actors and filmmakers and comedians came to Chicago to cut their teeth and then New York or LA would pluck them away Mm -hmm. for them to then get their success and now we're seeing you know comedians that have come back here they're like okay I'm good I made my money now I'm gonna come home and we're seeing people like Chicago yeah like investing in Chicago and investing in in the film community and I think the Illinois Film Office does a lot in that regard Mm -hmm. to keep it local and keep it uh, doable here so um, I, I agree with you. I think we're just at the beginning of – I mean, it started here, right? Mm-hmm. It was it was really like power and gatekeeping and an inflexibility to work with labor is what made Hollywood happen because it was all here, all of it. And then suddenly it was like, well, but the weather's better there. And if you guys are not going to cooperate and not going to help let us work and do the things and have all this, we're going to take it out here to this place called Los Angeles and away right. we go. And, and suddenly like – all that Charlie Chaplin and, and all these other studios had here at the time of silent film, it was taken and it, 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 it that made Hollywood. It was all just like stubbornness. And so then all of this labor revolution happened in, in Chicago and it really kind of switched things up a little bit. So it was, I mean, it was over a very long period of time and it took a, it wasn't like industrial and, and workers and film workers were, were added at the same time. But, mm-hmm. but to me, I think it's, it's time for a homecoming. I'm not saying we're going to pick up the whole film industry from Chicago, but I think culturally we're at that moment. I mean, I think we're going to see an interesting change in what gets funded right now just because of the Harvey Weinstein fallout. Yeah. I think a lot of people are like, okay, I better check myself before I wreck myself. Am I funding women? Am I treating women the same? Like, okay, maybe I'm not. Are we employing people that we're going to take heat for later? Yeah, Yeah. right. Is this person a total coach killer liability to have on my team? Maybe. Better get rid of them. (laughs) Yeah. So I think think we're about to see a big shift, and I think— think as a result we have an opportunity to to take back a little share of of the of of the filmmaking i mean it's been going on here a long time but i think it would be cool to see it happen in a more meaningful way in a bigger way in a more recognized way very cool on that note mic drop Mm. (laughs) all right well thanks for doing this joint episode with us amy yeah it well it just all fit together it was so perfect yeah all right. Well, I mean, Connor and I, you can catch us pretty much every week on uh, No Coast Cinema. We're on WGM Plus and uh, just go to – you can go to Facebook, find us there. And um, We're also on the iTunes podcast app. Yeah. yeah fancy. Super helpful. 
super helpful for everybody. And you can hear them all the time every week, whereas me, you only hear the Saturday Night Special when they're, the Blackhawks are not playing. And that's why <laughs> we have – but it's cool, right? Because necessity is the – you know, has caused us to innovate and do something creative. And that brings us to collaborations like this. For sure. Voila. Well, happy Halloween, everybody. They're coming to get you, Barbara.